Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity that You have prepared before time began for us to gather in Your presence today. We think of what You taught us from the Scriptures last week, Hebrews 4, 14-16, where twice our Lord Jesus Christ is declared unto us as our High Priest. And through Him, we can draw near to the presence of Almighty God. Truly an amazing thought, Lord, that these moments in the assembly of the Beloved, where You are here, pleased to dwell with us in the presence of Your Spirit, not just residing in our congregation, but in every redeemed heart, Lord, that that was purchased by Jesus' blood. And by His work on Calvary, He satisfied the price that our sin deserved. So that the wrath of God is satisfied. And we are unified with Christ and in fellowship with the Father. Lord, I pray that You would cause our hearts to spring forth in joy and fruit as we think about the beauty of our salvation. Return us through the pages of Your Scripture once again this morning to our first love. I pray that You would fit foundation stones alongside our understanding right now more knowledge of the Scriptures so we may stand firm in the day of trouble. I pray that You would overflow our cups so that we might pour it out to others and produce fruit of evangelism 30, 60, and 100 fold as we minister to our families and to others You lead us to this week. I pray, Lord, through the means of this service that You might equip and purify Your bride. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity and great privilege for us to open up His Scriptures again together. I'll invite you to do that with me this morning by turning to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm 50 will be our text this morning. In a moment after you turn there, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. While you're finding your place in your Scriptures there, the title of this morning's message is Covenant lawsuit song. There is a covenant lawsuit language that we read of in Psalm 50. And I think we'll find in legal terms much is here to understand about God's relationship with His people. In fact, God's relationship with the whole world. And we can understand that relationship in part with the help of the categories of covenant. And as we compare the Old Testament Scriptures to the fulfillment of the new and due course, I think we'll find greater reason to rejoice in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So stand with me if you would, with your Bible open, and let's read these verses together. Psalm 50, verses 1 through 23. Follow me as I read this psalm of Asaph. It begins, verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. 
I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I thought of ways to introduce this psalm to us this morning in the general tone, it seemed that this idea of legal language was thematic and structural to the shape of this message that the psalmist delivers to us in this song of Asaph. Psalm 50 reverberates like a trumpet blast. If you recall the language of prophetic imagery in Revelation, heralding back all the way to Leviticus and temple worship, the use of the trumpet uh, was often employed to gather or to announce or to proclaim certain news. That message, that sound, would strike at the heart of people's attention. And they would, as it were, drop what they were doing, set aside their daily tasks, and set their mind upon the herald, the message, the news, the messenger, whether it came from a call to worship or the edict of a king. This sound of a trumpet would reverberate like a blast in the ears. And in this passage, in Psalm 50, it's a blast in the ears, as it were, of all mankind signaling that the supreme court of all the universe will now convene. A shudder of sobering anxiety ought to course through the spine of every mere mortal who is caught red-handed in their lethargic routine of self-serving living at the sound of Psalm 50. Why? Because the divine court is now in session. Although written here prophetically, We see in Scripture and in the nature and the character of God, His judgments and His Word is settled eternally and as good as done. Therefore, though man lives like he can get away with certain things, and he might indulge himself in the impunity of the moment, there yet remains a certainty of reckoning and judgment. The Bible is clear and Psalm 50 makes it evident in these pages and in these words. 
Psalm 50 reminds us in these legal tones that one day a decree from God will go out and all of history, that is everyone who has ever lived, all children born of woman, even Adam and Eve themselves, will appear before the throne of God's justice. And we read this at the close of the canon in Revelation chapter 20. But again, it's a theme throughout. Psalm 50 is the most terrifying reality imaginable for those devoid of a propitiation sacrifice. That is, if you are summoned to this court, if you receive this subpoena, if you are indicted then uh, because you have no sacrifice, there is no appeal. Yet thanks be to God, there is a sufficient sacrifice. It's, It's exclusive. There is only one. And that sacrifice became a man and dwelt among us and we read of him and we proclaimed him last week. The propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins, the wrath satisfying uh, fellowship purchase price is Jesus Christ our Lord. The righteousness of God and his just demands have been revealed throughout scripture in legal terms. Psalm 50 is no exception and so they appear Here as well in this song, and I submit to you structured like a formal lawsuit document, this psalm of Asaph compels the God-fearer, the one who sees God as judge, recognizes Him as the Almighty One who sees all, knows all, and has final and ultimate authority. That person bows before the message of God because God is a God to be feared. The psalm of Asaph In Psalm 50, compels a God-fearer to bow before the Almighty's honor and glorify Him just as we would in the natural, in a courtroom, when we see represented before us in an elevated position behind an oak desk with that gavel laying in front of Him. We see a man, maybe with some grain hair, a black robe. All these symbols communicate to us that we are here in the context of authority. So even in a natural courtroom, we have an illustration of what we ought to feel as a result of the truth proclaimed in Psalm 50. We are standing in the presence of one who will decide our fate. And the only answer is, yes, your honor. The only way to approach him is with reverence and awe. And the only appeal that we have when we stand before that perfect judge as sinners is the blood of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that is the message of this psalm. So as we stand before His honor, Yahweh, in Psalm 50, let us with fear, with trembling, and also with thanksgiving rejoice because a sacrifice is available for us in our Lord. So let us consider this psalm in three major headings this morning under this title. Let's consider Psalm 50 as a God-breathed legal document. And as a God-breathed legal document, perhaps we could divide it in three parts. First of all, the preamble, verses 1 through 6. There's an introduction, the summons as it were, the introduction to what will follow or the calling, the herald the charge to appear before the bar of heaven, before the Lord and judge and glory. Secondly, there's the first oracle, which is the first word, the first declared truth, and this is separate by category in that it's delivered to covenant defendants, if you will. 
And then thirdly, there's a second oracle, and this begins in verse 16 through the remainder of the chapter. In this second oracle, this second word, this edict, is delivered to the wicked. And so we have a basic structure to unpack our psalm this morning. So let us consider Psalm 50 in this legal format. First of all, preamble. When I was in school, in elementary school, I distinctly remember, remember uh, memorizing the preamble of the Constitution of the United States of America. We the people, something like this, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, something, something, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Don't quote me verbatim. That something, something might have been um, just, uh, I might have something missing there. But that is a preamble. And the Constitution is a legal document. And notice the first two words are three. We the people. So the preamble to that legal document announces a particular person or party that is central or foundational to the rest of what follows. Now in the construct of this nation, we see authority in that document as resting on we the people. So the implication then is we the people by the authority then that they represent, do ordain and establish this Constitution. Now, let me submit to you that what follows that we the people is only as strong, only as binding, only as weighty, only as infallible as people are. So how strong is that document? Well, that's an open question. We won't discuss it much this morning, but by contrast, let's consider the preamble to Psalm 50. How does it open? Does it open, we the people, recognizing our collective plight, do vote for a God of our own understanding who can address us with salvation? No, it doesn't open like that. It's exactly reversed. Psalm 50 opens with these words, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. So then what follows, as we find in all the Word of God, is as firm, established, authoritative, binding, and immutable as the one from whom this edict is delivered. And who is it? Well, it is God Almighty, Yahweh, the Mighty One, the Lord of all the earth. And here we have in the preamble the plaintiff, if you will. What is a plaintiff? Well, in our modern day, this is legal language that refers to a party who brings a lawsuit. They are the one who brings the agent, who brings forth a claim or a charge in a court of law. They are indicting someone else. I'm raising charges against someone. Well, in the legal language of Psalm 50 and in the construct of this indictment, the plaintiff is God Himself. And He is announced at the very beginning with a triune reference. And in the original language, something like El, Elohim, and Yahweh. Three references to God. We see the, the uh, number three associated with the Godhead throughout Scripture. We understand God as one being in three persons. We understand Him as thrice worthy of worship, as uniquely in Scripture He alone is ascribed with the glory, worthy, 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 or holy, 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 is the, is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, that is, is the Mighty One, the God and the Lord. Mighty One, God and Lord, El, Elohim, and Yahweh. 
If we turn back to Exodus 3, 13 through 15, we get something of the history of this name as it's revealed to the covenant people. In these references, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Do you realize what Moses is asking? He says, in so many words, I'm a mere man. Why should they listen to me? Indeed, he recognizes that they should not. He's in no special standing compared to his fellow humanity. He comes with authority in as much as he represents another, and he wants to know his name. What authority, should I say, attends the word that I am to bring? What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, there it is, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And thus it proceeds with the message of Exodus that Moses would deliver to Pharaoh. That name would be represented, would would be the name that Moses represents when he steps into the presence of Pharaoh and says, let my people go. When Pharaoh says, who says? Why should I believe you? Look at me. I'm the chief potentate of the known world. I have more imperial power than you will ever dream to know. Unfathomable the amount of chariots I could issue and bowl over your slave people in a moment. Why should I listen to you? What did God do? He demonstrated His authority. He demonstrated His power. He had demonstrated it in His covenant faithfulness, answered prayer and miraculous intervention to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He demonstrated it in judgment at this moment in Exodus when He brought plague after plague, defeating the pantheon of Egyptian claims to authority, destroying their idols, and showing that there is one God and one Lord of all, and only one who can summon the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. There is only one who shines out of Zion in perfection and beauty, only one who has the authority and ability to call all of the created realm to stand before Him and give an accounting for their behavior. God Himself is judge. He is the plaintiff in this case. Secondly, we find a subpoena in the preamble. What is a subpoena? It's a written order commanding someone to appear before the court. A written order commanding someone to appear before the court. Another illustration for you briefly. I might have mentioned this before, probably because it sticks out so fearfully in my mind. I remember unwrapping a small envelope with professional-looking writing on it in that dreaded title, uh, International Revenue Service, and I knew it wasn't around tax time, I open it, intent to seize property uh, till blah, 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 fullest with, uh, it, I'm trying to think of the, uh, exactly, it was something like $5,000 I owed with interest, compounding this legal fee, that, and I looked at that paper, just the font struck a chord of fear in my heart. And it felt as if my whole house and my family was being sucked away by a giant authority. That's just the IRS and our experience. 
But the, the governments of man have a tendency to be intimidating to us, even as people. The question is, how much more ought the government of Almighty God oppress upon the fear and the reverence and the attention, and the sobriety of the consciousness of every human being? Why? Because He alone has ultimate authority and power. He alone is the only one who can legitimately, with the authority behind His name, write an order commanding not just one or two by man's laws to appear before Him, but indeed to subpoena everyone to stand before His court. And this is exactly what He does in Psalm 50. It says, The Mighty One, God the Lord, verse 1, speaks and summons the earth. And then there's language to illustrate the extent of this summons. This summons is from the rising of the sun to its setting. That is to say, if you have been affected by the rays of the sun, then you must appear before the Lord of glory and answer to Him at His court. This is a summons that extends this world over. It raises the question, does it not? How many today are in contempt of court before the Almighty God? How many today receive the letter of Psalm 50, much like I received the letter in the mail, tear it up, and throw it in the trash, continue to live oblivious to the authority of all the universe? And the next question, how will it fare for them? Well, let me submit to you that first in order of gospel priority is to deliver to the world the message that our God reigns. Think about the message of the apostles who went forward under the banner and the commission of our Lord in Matthew 28. Christ said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and be my witnesses. My witnesses to what? Well, in part, His authority. And they did exactly that. And this, I submit to you, is probably the central reason why the apostles were a political threat in their day. Not because they had pioneered a political movement, but because their message had ramifications. And the ramifications did extend into politics. They were saying there is a Lord over lords. There is a king over kings. There is a kurios a king over Caesar, Kaiser, and that king was Jesus. They brought the message with authority, and what did they say? Well, I submit to you, in New Testament language, they echoed with the fulfillment of Christ's finished work what had already been decreed ages past in Psalm 50. Today, a subpoena goes out from the Lord of glory to appear before Him. Where do you stand according to the standard, the measurement of His law? Are you in good standing? Do you have a sacrifice to cover your sin? Or are you in contempt of court this morning? And if you remain there, how will it fare for you at that moment of final reckoning? Thirdly, under preamble, there's the plaintiff, there's the subpoena, and then there's supremacy of the judge that's highlighted. We've mentioned this. Let's read again verse 2 and 3. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Language recalling in our mind a theophany, perhaps, which is a revelation in the experience or the senses of man, which has happened in the Old Testament from time to time to the very eyes of His people. 
God appeared in fire and cloud at different times. And in so doing, it was a manifestation symbolic of His authority, His glory, indeed His holiness. Out of Zion, that is, out of the place of God's dwelling with His people, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Here we find that His supremacy as judge is rooted in His nature and character. God is exclusively holy. The Godhead is perfectly pure. The Godhead exists infinitely, has always been the self-existent one. The I Am, Yahweh, shines forth. It goes on, verse 3, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. Often we wonder why natural disasters occur, occur. The Bible tells us various reasons God employs the elements of nature for His will and choosing. One of those reasons I submit to you is to represent His power, His authority, and the fact that He is judge. Bringing you back in your mind to the imagery of a courtroom, you see that gavel or the balances hanging. These are iconic to us. They represent authority. We're in a place where we must submit to a higher law or rule over us. There is an agency that is delegated to adjudicate, to decide the discrepancy I have. I'm not king in this courtroom. I submit to one over me. Well, in the same way as that gavel represents the authority of the judge, and when it's you know, brought down, that means case closed, and you cannot speak, the word, his word is final, as at, upon the case closing. In a similar sense, God has given us, through nature itself, and through the destructive forces of this universe, and of the elements of nature around us, proof positive of His authority. When a hurricane can decimate the most complicated, secure infrastructure that mankind has come up with so far, in a matter of moments, we ought to realize that we must stand one day before the judge who is in charge of hurricanes. When a fire comes and burns in an instant, all of our dreams and fortunes that we poured into our palace, our castle, our kingdom in this life, we ought to realize that there is a fire eternal to shun that burns with everlasting flame and will finally extinguish the rebellion in God's ultimate wrath forever for those who do not repent, accept His sacrifice, and thus are not in contempt of court when His subpoena is issued and the defendants must stand before the plaintiff and plead their case. This is the supremacy of Almighty God. The supremacy is reiterated in verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. If we didn't have enough evidence in His holy word, the Bible says, in addition, creation cries out, He is to be feared. He is the final authority. He is Creator. Romans 1, Psalm 19, the rest of Scripture tells us that we live and move and breathe inside an environment which is a living object lesson to the justice of God. May we pay heed. Finally, under preamble, this introduction to these truths in Psalm 50, we have witnesses that are summoned as well. And this appears to us in verse 4. And I would uh, have you turn back for a moment as we consider this to Deuteronomy 
chapter 4. In Psalm 50, verse 4, it says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. I'm sorry, that's verses 5 and 6. I meant to read 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Again, he, that is the Lord Almighty, calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. This language here recalls to our attention a common refrain in the book of Deuteronomy that also appears in legal covenant language. Notice in Deuteronomy 4.26, for example, I call, this is the voice of the Lord again, speaking in legal terms, delineating the covenant, covenant aspects to His people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. There is a message for us that recalls a similar language. It's a summoning of witnesses. I call heaven and earth to witness, to testify against you. I'll flip later in the book of Deuteronomy over to chapter 30, and we see this language again, this calling of witnesses. Deuteronomy 30, of course, the context is similar there. And in verse 19, we have this language. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. But again, the phrase of note, I call heaven and earth to witness, is to testify against you. Isaiah 1, verse 2, you will find that the prophet in the opening pages appeals to the same witnesses, calling heaven and earth to witness against God's people. You see, in the Old Covenant, there were covenant ceremonies, there were certain protocol and legal language and structures to uh, uh, treaties or agreements that were made between parties. Oftentimes, these treaties themselves would have a preamble. They would have a historical prologue, which would talk about the history of the relationship between the two parties. There would be stipulations, you shall do this, you shall not do that. There would be then uh, repercussions, curses, and blessings ratifying that covenant. And then there would be an, an allowance for a succession, a continuation. And in that succession would often be this invocation of witnesses. When two parties agreed to something, there would be parties that witnessed it, and then that document or that agreement had that additional measure of legal binding authority. Well, in this sense, God has revealed His Word and His covenant to His people. And much like it says later in the New Testament, since God had no one else to swear by, He swore to Himself, since He could call no other witnesses, Aside from man and himself, he calls as witnesses heavens and the heavens and the earth, as it were, to look on as this contract, this agreement, this covenant is put down in stone, as it were. And so here we have in the preamble, the plaintiff, 
God himself, the subpoena, the court order, summoning everyone everywhere through all history to appear before his supremacy with witnesses, creation itself, heaven and earth, to testify to the authority, to the certainty of this occasion. So as we consider Psalm 50 as a God-breathed legal document, we've considered preamble, and now let's see the substance and the meat of it as it unfolds in the first oracle, beginning in verse 7. Here we have this language. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You'll notice in the first oracle that the first list or group of defendants, those who are called or subpoenaed to appear before the court, who are there now representing themselves and where they stand, are within the covenant. That is, in the first oracle, it's addressed to covenant defendants, if you will, again, to use that legal language. This is clear rewinding to verse 5. In the summons itself, we have this language, Gather to me, my faithful ones. The judge of heaven wants the faithful ones, those who are in relationship with him, in covenant with him, it says, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, to gather and to hear his instruction. And so in the first oracle, they are the recipients of the words that we just read. If we go back to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6, we get something of the history, the covenant history, of this kind of relationship and this kind of message. In Deuteronomy 30, it's important, I think, to cross-reference some of these texts because it helps us realize what's imported poetically into the psalm. In Deuteronomy 30, again, verses 1 through 6, it says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice, and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If, you, uh, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there uh, He will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. In verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So here we have promises. We have uh, much in the framework that we mentioned before, the prologue, historical, the preamble, historical prologue, stipulations, curses and blessings, covenant succession, invocation of witnesses. Within that basic framework, Deuteronomy 30, 
delineates, it lays out some of the aspects of relationship between God's people and between Himself. And there are some surprising truths here. Among them is that the sacrificial system is symbolic more than it is substantial. And God was after the heart of His people. And we'll see as we move through some of these verses that perhaps the people had replaced the external forms with the internal substance. And thus in this summons, in this uh, calling, in this oracle, where the covenant people are called to appear before the Lord, there is something of a gracious correction that comes to him, to them. This, the way God approaches the people, all people, beginning with his own, is a consistent theme through Scripture. In 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18, it says that judgment must begin in the house of God. So in the same way, Peter declares the principle that's evident in Psalm 50. Often when God brings forth His truth, when He uh, issues a charge to set the record straight, when He calls people's attention to the ultimate authority and to stand uh, with Him and to heed His holy word, He does so cons- uh, considering His people first. First Peter 4, for instance, as I mentioned to you, 17 and 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So there you see again similar language and sentiments. The people of God are called to be in right standing. They're called to correct and to repair and to reform to the standard of God's relationship and His revealed truth to them. Not to be distracted with the trappings of external liturgy, but instead to remember the heart of the matter. And so in this sense, the first oracle is delivered to the covenant defendants. Secondly, the redress, that is uh, addressing something to correct, a message of correction. This message of correction deals specifically with sacrifices. It's a redress on sacrifices. First of all, In 50 verse 8, there's a clarifying note. The Lord says, It's not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you or your burnt offerings. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So we can understand that. It's not because you haven't been practicing the uh, temple worship, the, the ministry of sacrifices through the priesthood. Yet something was yet missing. In verse 9 it says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the fields is mine. So then the question comes to us, what then is the purpose of sacrifice? Our Lord is telling us in Psalm 50 that He does not need food from these sacrifices. He does not need provision from bulls, goats, and cattle. He owns the hills. The earth is the Lord's, as Psalm 24 tells us, and the fullness thereof. So what is the main idea then, the purpose in these sacrifices? We continue to read. It says, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Because he uh, does not receive provision from men. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And here is the clarifying note in verse 14. This dials in on the heart of the matter. And the theme of Psalm 50, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. You shall glorify me. There was to be understood in the Old Covenant as well as the New, a symbolic nature of sacrifice. Some have mistakenly claimed that sacrificial system was the way of salvation in the Old, and Jesus is the way of salvation in the New. That would be a misunderstanding according to Psalm 50. We don't bring sacrifices because God needs something and we provide something that He lacks. Instead, it is representative of something else. As we find in the text, we are drawn to a closer and a more acute understanding of the message of all the Scripture, which is that the sacrifices of the old are symbolic of God Himself providing the lamb in the bush, in the thicket, and later providing the Lamb of God for us. You recall Abraham, Mount Moriah, is called to sacrifice his son. Bring to me, God told him, your only son as a sacrifice. Yet in his sovereignty, to proclaim to us the message of the sacrificial system, God Almighty stayed the hand of Abraham. Abraham, in this way, as a proto-high priest, if you will, then was provided a sacrifice in the thicket. God will provide, he told his son, and indeed he did. God provided the sacrifice. We provide God nothing. God himself in Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice. These people were bringing their offerings before the Lord as if in their own strength and merit they could curry or earn His favor. We cannot, neither today nor then. Only the sacrifice, only the offering that is provided is sufficient. This is the message. So what do we then offer the Lord? Well, we don't offer to Him intrinsic to us the propitiation for our sins, We offer instead thanksgiving, the offering, the praise that He deserves because He is sufficient of Himself, has satisfied our soul's need, has purchased our salvation, has shed His own blood for us. A sacrifice does not provide for God, but instead it provides for us. And the sacrifice is not provided by men, instead it's provided by God. And this understanding sets us free to our chief end indeed. What is that chief goal and purpose? Not to provide our own sacrifice, but instead to glorify the Lord. Our, the, uh, our uh, author records in Psalm fifty fifteen, And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. It's reiterated in verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. This, I submit to you, is the governing principle for covenant membership. Who is a member of God's covenant? It is those who have had a sacrifice provided and therefore in their thankful, worshipful hearts are set free to glorify the Lord for satisfying the wrath that their sin deserved in His Paschal Lamb, in His suffering servant. Finally, under First Oracle, there is a covenant injunction. That is, there is a court order issued to the covenant people. And we see this 
in three categories in two verses, 14 and 15. Offered to God, or I'm sorry, in just one verse, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. There's this call, it's preceded by a charge to perform your vows and also to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But I submit to you that is the content of the call. That is, in our worship, we cry out to the Lord. And in the very first place, when we come to Christ, when we are born again, this call, this cry, would uh, best be understood in New Testament revelation as repentance and faith. Repent and place faith in me in your day of trouble. And what will happen? I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This repentance, this gift of God, this gift of faith is given to us and then we call upon Him. He delivers us and we are then set free to glorify the Lord. There is in Psalm 50 the redemptive pattern of the gospel. This is the internal reality of faithful worshipers. They call upon the Lord in the day of trouble, recognizing that even that voice, that softening of their heart of clay to one of flesh is a gift of the Almighty God. And as they cry out to Him, they receive a response. They are promised deliverance in their Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, they overflow in songs, praise, and obedience, and dutiful a service and loyalty to the king that paid the price for their sin. They are set free by God's delivering power to glorify him in this life and in the next. So that is the first oracle, if you will. The covenant defendants are the one who receive the word. Those who are within the visible, if you will, body of Christ as we understand it today, or the covenant of Israel as it was written then, Secondly, there's this redress or there's this correction, their notion of sacrifices. And thirdly, there's this covenant charge, court order, or injunction to call upon the Lord, receive His gospel, and glorify Him in praise. Thirdly, our final point this morning, considering Psalm 50 as a God-breathed legal document, we have the second oracle. There is a slight change of tone in the text. Maybe that's an understatement. And we begin to hear it in verse 16. Listen again as I read. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Verse 17. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Verse 22, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. Let's hold uh, verse 23 for a moment and consider this second oracle. Who are the defendants in this case or in this division of the lawsuit? They are the wicked. They are the ones who are living on the borrowed capital of God, if you will. They are the pagans 
who live freely and indulge themselves with the bounty and blessings of this world, but pay no heed to the Creator and Governor thereof. You guys ever heard this language? You know, I expect pagans to act like pagans, but I expect more of the church. Uh, You know, it doesn't surprise me that the world would act like the world. That statement is a little short-sighted, I would submit to you. Does God ever in His Word say or communicate such a thing? Oh, I expect pagans to act like pagans. Not according to the indictment of Psalm 50. Psalm 50 indicts all inhabitants of the world I submit to you. In the context, this may include those within the covenant of Israel who had forsaken their vows, yes, But we know from the summons at the beginning of this psalm that all under the rising and the setting of the sun are called to hear. So I would submit to you that the application moves beyond a, a parochial Israel to everyone indeed who lives in God's world. And what does God say to the wicked? He says, how dare you continue to indulge yourself of my provision and to live and to confess I do not exist. There's going to be a judgment one day. The Word of God tells us in Revelation 20, where all will appear before the judgment throne of God. And there will be no category of pagans who get a pass because we just expect them to act like pagans. Why? Because creation itself is a living, breathing revelation, inescapable to every human being that God exists And therefore, we are without excuse. You ought to have known better, no matter who you are. Because the Word of God is written deep within the soul of everyone who has ever lived, according to the book of Romans. And it's painted across the sky every morning and evening when the sun rises and sets. And by this testimony, remember, I call heaven and earth to witness against these people. By this testimony, those who cast God's words behind them, are in breach, in contempt of court, and will be judged if they do not repent. They are indulging in all of the bounty of this world, as I mentioned, according to Psalm 36. In other psalms, we read of God's glorious provision. His steadfast love extends to the heavens. His faithfulness to the clouds. His righteousness is like the mountains of God. His judgments are like the great deep. How precious, verse 7, is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now, those who recognize that our hope is in the Lord, we lift up our eyes. Where does our help come from? It comes from the God of Jacob. They can take refuge and indulge freely at the table of God's provision. But for those who eat and do not acknowledge Him, bow before His word and beseech Him for salvation, they do not eat freely invited, but they partake as thieves. Imagine this illustration for a moment. You move to a new suburb or area or city. You relocate with your family. It's a nice neighborhood, kind of upscale. You know, kind of McMansions in a suburb or something. You want to get to know your neighbors. So you decide, well, on Saturday, I'm going to knock on a few doors. So you knock on the first house and no one answers. So you just walk right in. 
And you don't even announce yourself, hello, is anyone home? You just go straight to the refrigerator. Oh, I love Hot Pockets. You throw one in the microwave. Well, I figure I have a few minutes before my favorite TV show starts, so I jump in the shower upstairs. And then without a care in the world, I order pizza, I grab someone's bathrobe, and I sit down in the easy chair and flip through the channels. Does that sound audacious to you? Who would do such a thing? Only the most, you know, debased criminal, only the greatest fool would just walk right into somebody's dwelling and pretend like it's his. Who are we? Who are we walking in God's great earth? If we do not recognize that he owns this earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, every cow on every hill, every bird that takes wing across every sky this globe over, who are we as human beings who freely partake of God's bounty in this world and do not acknowledge him? We are that fool who just breaks into the house, raids the fridge, and treats it lightly, does not consider who is the owner. What will happen in the illustration I just gave you? Well, one day, soon, or maybe in a matter of moments, the owner will return. And what will he say to the squatter? Well, it is his right to throw him out on his ear, is it not? How much greater the Lord of glory. Notice the language, verse 21, that illustrate the foolishness and audacity of unbelief. These things you have done, and I have been silent. In other words, you think for a brief moment while you're relaxing in that easy chair, while the homeowner is away, that you won't have any consequences. Boy, this is nice. Listen, this is where they get it wrong. This is their first mistake. You thought that I was one like yourself. Think about the interviews you might have heard on the street lately. If you listen to the news, especially the Christian blogs or follow any podcasts, you might hear Christian apologists out there say, what do you think of gay marriage? Oh, I agree with that. I think anybody who loves each other should be free to be in whatever relationship they so choose so long as nobody gets hurt or whatever. And then that person might say, uh, what do you think God thinks of gay marriage, so-called gay marriage? Let me qualify. And they say, oh, I, I, think, I think you would love it. Jimmy Carter was quoted this week or last week as saying that, that very thing. Oh, I, I don't think God uh, is opposed to any love affair where, where two, two consenting parties really have care and concern for one another, something along those lines. What are we doing? What are we doing if we throw the word of God behind us? What a right have you to recite my statutes? You take my covenant on your lips, for you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. What right do you have to say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I, Jesus loves me. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. What, mind. what right do you have to plead affinity with the Lord of glory when you throw his words behind you? This was your first mistake. You thought that he was one like yourself. Well, I think it's fine, so obviously Jesus thinks it's fine. Well, I have no problem with it, so obviously God has no problem with it. Who is God? Your own mind? Your own thoughts? Are you not a sinner? Do you have the ability in your own consciousness to arbitrarily reset the scales of justice to decide what is good and evil? Never let it be said. You see, these who fall into this category are the wicked defendants. They're the ones who, when they are called before the bar of heaven, before the courtroom of God, will be proven the greatest fools of all because they're moving to this new city, as it were, the world, they wake up and they just run around with no thought as to who created it. Now, the redress to these is by the law itself. 
And thus the second table is employed to show them the sinners that they are. This is the use of the law that we need to consider when we're evangelizing and we consider in the first place when we come to the cross. The law shows us our sin. And the author of Psalm 50 shows the sin of those who fall into this category by using the law itself. He employs the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, when he says, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. He employs the seventh commandment when he indicts that the, uh, in the second oracle the wicked defendants with this redress. He indicts them by saying, according to the, eighth command, or the seventh commandment, that you keep company with adulterers. When the word of God that they cast behind them says, thou shalt not commit adultery. He employs the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness when he says, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. And there is even the context of dishonoring a family and parents. In verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And you see the law needs to have its proper place in the case like this. We need to see that by the standard we fall short. We are not God. We cannot presume to be in good standing with God if the law and its demands have not been satisfied on, for us, and the only possible way is in the imputed, law-keeping righteousness of Christ. And this is the second aspect of, of the second oracle, that this redress comes and the law re, uh, is employed in this indictment. Now thirdly, under second oracle, there is judgment proclaimed. You thought that I was one like yourself, and so what expectation do those who are hearing this have if they do not change their mind? Verse 22 tells us, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You see, this psalm does not come without a promise of deliverance. There is a promise of deliverance. We had heard it already in verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But for those who do not heed the call, for those who do not have the sacrifice, for those who are not judged by the, or who are not humbled by the word of God, they approach God in a different way, an attitude entirely. And for them, until they repent, there is no deliverance. There is none to deliver. Only the fearful expectation that this poetic and graphic language portends of being torn apart, being utterly destroyed, limb from limb, as it were. Finally, this morning, at the very end of this passage, this psalm, there is a mercy clause in the second oracle. It reads as follows, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of of God. This, of course, is the chorus, if you will, of Psalm 50. This is the refrain. This is the hopeful ode. This is the repeated theme. There is mercy. There is hope. The author is expounding the grace of the gospel and exclaiming in joyful proclamation of song and worship the salvation of God. For those who offer Thanksgiving as the sacrifice. They are the ones who now understand in humility 
they fall short of the law and have sought for a propitiation that is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for their sins. And in this way, they have, their way is ordered rightly. And to those, they will receive this blessing, this promise, this covenant benefit, the salvation of God. Turn with me to Revelation 7. Conclusive fulfillment and quintessential application of Psalm 50 would have to be found in the book of Revelation. We've mentioned already appearing before the judgment seat of God Almighty in Revelation 20. But there's also this record of worship that I find instructive in Revelation 7. As we read again these words, let us notice these themes and also let us notice the similarities. There is a sacrifice in view here, the sufficient lamb. There are those that that have covenanted with that lamb and now worship and glorify him. They do so in an assembly and they do so celebrating salvation. After this I looked, verse 9, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Do you remember the summons that went from all the earth? Glory to God. One aspect of that summons is that from every nation, tribe, and people, there will be those summoned to appear who rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ with their robes washed and joyfully offering praise to His holy name. It says in verse 10, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne the el- and, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Verse 12, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory Wisdom, and you can highlight this, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Hear the summons and revelation and great future and present if you are in Christ's fulfillment. Hear the summons has been heeded the world over and a representative people has gathered and assembled offering an acceptable sacrifice inasmuch as they have received Christ as their Passover lamb. And they are giving the sacrifice of thanksgiving, recognizing this lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ. And they glorify God for their salvation. And they do it right now, and they will do it, and we will join them forever if you are in Christ this morning. Let us close in a prayer of thankfulness. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be counted among that number because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. That number who heed the summons and are the covenant people because of your great sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that as we consider these things, that the gospel would come alive in assurance in our hearts, but also in the proclamation of truth for those whose eyes have not yet been opened. And hope said through the proclamation of the word of God through our lips and deeds, they might hear 
the knowledge of the truth, and that they might place faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in so doing, Father, you will reap yet more for your harvest, calling in the elect from the four corners of this globe and indeed across the landscape of history until the fullness of time comes and we all join in perfect, in perfect fellowship, joining the worship service in glory, singing and shouting, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.